stretches. Yoga time. And now here we are. Episode 21. Episode 21. And this is our first international guest, I'm so excited to say. Oh, man. So we are 20 weeks into this with a two-week reprieve. We are now in... Between 1,000 and 2,000 downloads, we are in England, we are in Canada, we are in Aruba, we are in Australia, and we are in 36 states of the U.S., and I'm so proud to say that. So this next guest is, I'm going to say this something different to how we met. So recently, I hired someone to help me with my Instagram account to help spread the word for Hempathletics podcast. And in doing so... The first or second post drew a gentleman from Scotland who has a history with cannabis and some autism. Uh, He grew up on the autism spectrum, barely speaking in public, found cannabis and theater as a way out of an anxious mind. He found working as an actor in New York City for 10 years before putting it on hold to save money for the big move to Scotland where his wife is from. To do that, He moved from Washington just before the time that recreational markets started. He refined his technique with huge amounts of flour provided by the medical growers out in Washington. It led to basically a lot of joint rolling to help him and his wife. And I'm going to let that story come out. But this interesting gentleman is named Kenneth Mann. And he is calling us from Glasgow, Scotland. And hopefully I said that right. So welcome to the show, Kenneth. Hiya, how you doing? Brian, yes, uh, that is absolutely correct. Glasgow, Scotland, you got it. <laughs> Amen, and and uh, uh, thank you, f- and welcome to the show. What time is it there right now? I like the time difference. So here we're taping at noon on this day, and what time is it there? It is five o'clock here. Yeah, we're five hours ahead. Excellent. So there's so much of your story I want to tell, but first I do want to be a little selfish and ask you what motivated you to reach out to, to my podcast here overseas so far from you um, to, to help us both spread our word to people. What, what made you call What made you reach out? Well, um, I had been recommended uh, your podcast by a friend of mine who is another local Glasgow sort of green team person here. He goes, uh, he has his own uh, little presence on Instagram, and he recommended that I uh, get in touch with you and listen to your podcast. And I listened to a few, I'm a big podcast listener. I um, have a two hour commute each day, uh, each way back and forth to a a town uh, that I, uh, one of the bigger cities here. So Glasgow is a big city, but I, I actually currently have a day job at an escape room. And uh, so I, I have a, quite a commute and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And, uh, you know, I, I've been trying to find uh, cannabis podcasts, hadn't found that many. And when I heard yours, I really quite liked it. So uh, it's been interesting hearing about your history in the Postal Service and things like that. So, yeah, I, I just want to try and connect with other podcasts. And down the line, I've always I actually intended to start a comedy podcast some years back but uh, just haven't ever pulled the pulled the uh, the ripcord on that. So we'll see. Excellent. So you're originally from the United States, is that correct? That's correct. Yes, I. Um, so I am an actor. I started in um, in New Jersey, actually in Orristown, New Jersey, um, just doing regular stage acting. Um, I you know was a singer and things first. So I began um, doing. Um, 
uh, musicals and worked my way into taking it seriously enough to go to university for it. And uh, I went to train for um, for acting in Glasgow and and uh, they actually have one of the best programs in the world. And uh, it was a really wonderful place to have my education and to get on stage. And after graduation, I'm not a citizen, so I don't have the right to stay. So I went right back to New York City and started uh, working and auditioning for television. So wait a minute. So you go from being an introvert to an actor. Uh, that seems like a, a, yeah, a, yeah. that's awesome. So how did you get from that place to that place? This, this is where we really got to start the foundation with this. This is very intriguing to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would say that my, um, I, I had a lot of very um, quiet time with cannabis. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I was not very talkative. Um, I, I would actually tend to describe, squeak a lot and and make uh, sort of um, odd noises in my head. Just the, the way I look back at it now, I was reminding myself that I had a voice because I just didn't talk in class. I felt very judged all the time for my the way I spoke and the way I sounded and things like that. And um, and through theater and um, particularly through cannabis, theater I was able to exist with a certain amount of idiosyncrasy and oddness and that was fine but it was when I added that other element of cannabis that I started to feel out what my personality was um, and I, I took a lot of long baths with a, uh, with a, uh, a joint <laughs> and just kind of learned to get in touch with who I was as a person because up until that point I, I often felt like I was doing impressions of people I met and I would seemingly have a different personality, almost dependent on who I was talking to. Um, over time, I feel now much more like I have discovered who I am, not just through cannabis, but also by inhabiting characters and finding what about these people motivates these people and seeing what motivates myself. So how old were you when you first sampled with cannabis? I was um, uh, 16 years old. Um, I had been, um, so I'd been placed on um, ADHD. They called it ADHD at the time, uh, but I was then told it was because they didn't want to give me the label. They called it la the label of autism, which I thought was kind of uh, odd. But they gave me Ritalin and then more Ritalin types and then Concertas and Slow Release and all these various pharmaceuticals and eventually settling on uh, heroic doses of Adderall. So I have all this Adderall and Adderall becomes something that people know about and people who weren't taking it knew that if you took or bumped it, you know, crushed it and bumped it, it was interesting. And so they started, people started leaning on me and I would always, you know, say, no, 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 I, this is mine. I need it. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I just decided one day to uh, provide some to um, someone who asked. And um, of course, the very first time I handed him a couple of pills, I got caught. Wow. And they, you know, I went to a school that was that catered. I was sort of a not a charity case in any literal sense, but definitely I was admitted because of some of my um, uh, you could call 
um, disabilities. I don't, but some people do. Whatever my my head case is called, mm-hmm. they uh, they allowed me into the school with some people who were very rich and well connected and all that kind of thing. Well, there was lots of weed and other drugs and speed and all kinds of stuff around the school, and those kids would get caught and never disciplined because their parents were large donors. My parents were not, and I was hauled in front of the school made an example of, told of the dangers of a prescription medication, uh, you know, handing it out and all this kind of stuff and suspended and all this kind of thing. Big morning meeting happens and they gun- rode through all of my punishments in front of the, uh, in front of the entire, you know, assembled school. And after that happened, um, I was cornered by uh, a fellow actress, uh, a fellow actor who uh, she is the most beautiful woman to this day I've ever met. <laughs> and she cornered me and said, Ken, that really sucked. Would you like to smoke some weed after class? And from that day, I was kind of hooked on the idea that this was something that was going to change my life. And it really did. What an awesome experience. That could have been so horrible. That <laughs> yeah, turned kind of- so awesome. So it changed your whole life that day. Yeah, I wasn't really hanging out with many people after school or anything like that. And from that sort of just invitation, I made friends and started socializing a lot more than I ever had in my life. And as I said, sort of discovering who who I wanted to be and who I was. Did you thank those administrators after the fact? Uh, a few of them were very aware that this was going to make me popular. <laughs> and they kind of dated to themselves and to me that this was a silly idea. But, um, you know, it's, they felt their hands were tied in a certain sense, even though, you know, uh, they easily could have made examples for many other students for many other worse activities than the kinds of things I was doing. So, but, you know, it's the way that they were dealing with those issues at the time. And, um, I do think that the, you know, we can definitely talk about um, the absurdity, the absurdity of what we call the drug war, but um, the pharmaceutical angle of it is a whole separate thing that I've, I've gone through the system of, and um, I'm actually, I've been pharmaceutical free, aside from, again, heroic doses of ibuprofen every couple of days, um, but yeah, I, I don't take much in the way of um, pharmaceuticals in any way now. Um, and to be honest, since leaving Washington, I haven't used much cannabis uh, with THC either um, because it's so hard to obtain here. Um, and it's also, I'm here on a visa. I don't want to jeopardize that. And so I've gone whole hog towards CBD. I'm so happy to hear that. So we have so many different paths to take here. So first I want to start with acting. Okay, so I love how you mentioned uh, when you're young, you would mimic people and, and it probably was training for your future acting abilities, right? Like, so did you do that while you're on ADHD yeah. medicine or was it when you started using cannabis that you did it or was it something you did like right from birth? Um, since I was very young, I used to um, spend hours with my head on a speaker uh, mimicking Michael Jackson, actually, uh, <laughs> on uh, Thriller and Bad and stuff like that, and just really imitating music. And so my connection through to theater ended up coming because I started uh, mimicking opera from that great episode, uh, that great um, uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's the barber of Seville. 
mm-hmm. the, um, the that uh, Warner Brothers opera cartoon. And um, I just sort of started singing with this giant voice sometimes when I was watching those episodes. And it got me interested in in my choirs. And there was a choir at my school. And from there, I was sort of almost recruited into theater. So cool. So it was natural for you. I mean, it just it natural came for you. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely um, have an instinct. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a great mimic. Uh, there are comedians and and uh, people out there who are incredible mimics, and I don't count myself in that way. But I definitely enjoy mimicry. I enjoy trying, and I now kind of understand that that a lot of my responses, even now, I can kind of feel like sometimes I I'm giving what I could. I could almost say are turns of phrase, but it's just the way I speak now. I, I think it's an odd thing to put my finger on exactly, except to say that now I do feel a lot more like I am participating in conversations rather than just filling in gaps. When I was younger, I often felt like I was um, um, just talking to people with things that I had heard before. And now I've got enough life experience and done it enough that I, I feel less like I'm uh, sort of an algorithm spitting up or like a chatbot. I think when I was younger, I definitely felt that way, where someone says this, so I say that. Someone said this, so I say that. And um, through cannabis and introspection and, and the years for sure of practice, I've found who I am. But, uh, but yeah, theater... Theater was a great training ground for that because you're you're inhabiting characters and then you have a director. I had some really great teachers in Morristown and, and other places. I went to uh, high school in Michigan for theater and these teachers can stop the scene and say, why did you react that way? Because don't you think this would happen when people said this or what is this person thinking when you do that? And so having to look at a character's motivations independent of what they actually verbalize, what they say, um, it sort of shows very starkly indeed how we think as human beings and how we interact in conversation. So what's the difference between mimicry and doing impressions? Right. Well, the mimics will disappear into the character in a way that in some ways we we almost feel uncomfortable watching. You know, um, certain actors will become a character so well, they will mimic mannerisms and intonations and everything will just sound exactly like that person. And that's great. But I think we all know that Dana Carvey's impression of George H.W. Bush was uh, <laughs> pretty great and you know, everyone really loved it, but it is just an impression, one that people then pass along and can, <laughs> you know, try in their own way. An impressionist is making, taking a sampling, exaggerating it, and creating the joke. Yeah, okay. I like it. <laughs> and that's awesome. Yeah, yeah you took a hey, what, but, what, but, uh, Yeah, absolutely. What's your best impression? I have to ask you now. Do you have your go-to? My, oh, boy. Uh, well, uh, you know, it's been a little while, so I'd have to tune my ear a little bit. But I recently was – so this is, this may take a moment to explain, so I'll set it up and try to do it quickly. I've, no, I've no, no quickly. There's nothing quickly in this show, man. <laughs> right. I'll have you on 10 okay. times, okay? So make it as long-winded as you want. So it, 
in the UK, they have a style of theater that tends to be out around Christmas called pantomime. Now, pantomime is nothing like the what we would call mime in the U.S., where, you know, you're trapped in a box and you're running somewhere silently, all that kind of stuff. They actually don't do that very much here. Pantomime is a very old style of theater where there are certain rules. Um, the audience has um, a, a sort of a, a bit of stock responses and uh, parts to play throughout the, the show. And it's usually a, a stock um, story like Aladdin, which is a very old story, or The Wizard of Oz, another um, open, open use kind of old story. Um, as long as it doesn't have ruby slivers, you can do The Wizard of Oz. Um, there's things like, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk or, um, or, um, things like Cinderella. Those are all sort of basic fairy tale stories that they rewrite every year to take in new things that new jokes that may have come up or new songs that are in the zeitgeist and new political things that are happening. And you work them into a Christmas show. It's usually Christmas themed. There's usually a bit of, um, um, you know, uh, very specific, you know, signals to the air, the local area in which it's being performed usually. So to give you the rundown of what I just did this past December, I did a run of 38 shows, uh, over the month of December for a show, a production in Aberdeen, which is far North in, in Scotland here, about three hours North of Glasgow. And this show was an adaptation of Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, Jack and the Beanstalk, pretty familiar story to most people. There's a, a guy who is uh, who sells his cow for some magic beans. He gets tricked into selling what he's told are magic beans, and he puts them in the ground, and a, and a fairy godmother comes and turns them into a beanstalk that he then climbs up and defeats a giant to feed his family, right? Now, this story in this... Uh, in this setting in Aberdeen, it was the village people of Abergreen. They are giving tributes to the big giant up in the sky who turns the seasons and keeps the gardens of Abergreen growing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now a, a, an evil, they usually have a good, a goodie and a baddie. And the baddie is an evil slug named Selena and Selena slug <laughs> is trying to make the season stop and so that it's always rainy and she can inhabit all the gardens, right? That's the story for this year. Okay. Now, in order to do that, she needs to get up into the sky to talk to great big blowy bucket and steal the, the, the thing that turns the season. And to do that, she runs across someone who has happened into Evergreen that, that this, this day. And I played the character of Donald Turnip, international <laughs> golfing mogul. So... I uh, I show up in a helicopter called Hair Farce One, oh and um, my my helicopter uh, um, takes me and Selena up to Big Blowy Bucken up in the up in the sky in Cloudland, and we steal the granite key. And at the end, everyone learns a lesson and becomes good pals again. Uh, but yes, I did have to do I had to do my my exaggerated Donald Trump impersonation, which, you know, uh, it was aided by a lot of orange face paint and white panda eyes. Uh, <laughs> now, did you, have, did you work on it that impression prior to him being president? Was that something in your repertoire? 
I did, but I also we made it very clear, you know, from from first discussions, because a lot of the script is rewritten when actors come on board um, to make it more personal and Mm to sort of keep it very current. And one of the things that we came to quite early is that we don't want to stick with a hard mimic of Donald, uh, whoever that might be in reference to. Um, But we wanted to make it a, a stock kind of, you know, schlocky character, just somebody who's who's. American and brash and big and yada 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 and all that kind of New Yorky kind of stuff. Yeah. Even though the person I'm mimicking or impre- giving an impression of doesn't necessarily have all that all the time. Um, so yeah, it, it was kind of meant to evoke an idea, but not be a mimic, not be a, a cast iron impression. So I did work on it, but I was more focused on the lines and the acting, and, or rather the, the blocking uh, and dances. I had a couple of dances with the slug, which is quite fun. Uh, but yeah, it was great. How much fun. So tell me some, about a couple of your favorite roles through your, through your acting career. Do you have some that stand out to you that you really enjoyed well, or, oh, or that actually, people would relate to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites um, was uh, I got to play uh, in high school. I got to play Don Quixote in The Man of La Mancha. And that's uh, got some of the best music ever written for, for a, a baritone actor. Uh, really, really nice stuff. And um, that was um, a dream, dream part. Um, they actually, when, when I was caught with this Adderall passing, they removed me from the show about a day or two before opening as a means of punishing me and apparently the entire theater department. But that's besides the point. That's just more overreactions of drugs. But um, I, uh, I've been able to do a number of things here and there, um, though most of my job as an actor in New York was auditioning and not getting the part, unfortunately. Um, I did a lot of auditioning for series regular parts and uh, pilots. I was very active in the uh, pilot season in New York doing um, um, work for uh, Warner Brothers, CBS, NBC, and I did a couple of appearances as um, a principal postal worker um, in Boardwalk Empire. I'm in the first season of Boardwalk Empire just for a brief moment uh, with Michael Shannon sort of just relaying messages and things. That's why we met, because you played a postman. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I, I actually got to wear, you know, I went to costume at Navy Pier down in Brooklyn, uh, where they shot the show on their film lots down there, and went to costuming, and they said, well, actually, and I said, what, a, what an amazing costume department, I said, and they go, it's actually, the interesting thing is you're not going to be wearing a costume. We have the original postal worker uniforms, so don't you're not allowed to eat in these things and you can't even take a sip of water in this thing. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. But, uh, so tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny yeah. because you know, I don't know if there's postal references in almost every movie or TV show, the blue boxes, a collection truck, you know, a delivery truck. I don't know if you notice it, but it's constant. I love it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely, um, it's an ingrained part of our culture and an amazing one. I mean, if you really step back and think about it for, a few for a few cents, we can put a physical object into someone else's hands across the country. That's uh, that's more Herculean than it sounds, I think. And 
appreciated by a lot of people. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting listening to your uh, descriptions of, of sorting and things like that yesterday, uh, or uh, when I was listening to your previous podcast yesterday. And um, yeah, it's uh, we got to wear these costumes that were very heavy, almost tweed, but probably not tweed. They're probably some kind of cotton duck mix or something. I don't know what fiber it was, but the one of the more interesting features of the costume, the uniform I was wearing was that on my right shoulder, there was a extra strip of cloth and it was asymmetrical. There wasn't one on the left shoulder. And I asked why, and they said, well, you were only allowed to wear your mailbag over your right shoulder. And so when the, uh, when the uniform would wear down on that shoulder, they didn't want to replace the whole jacket. So they just replaced the patch. I had patched so the regulations yeah, were down. That makes to, sense. Yeah. Yeah. Only on the right shoulder, because you were not allowed to wear the mailbag on your left shoulder, no matter what your back was saying to you. That is so funny. So if and and think about people that were left-handed versus right-handed. I mean, I I was a postal carrier supervisor for <laughs> over ten years. Man, every carrier has to wear yeah. it a different way. I mean, just imagine. Oh, that is so funny. Yeah. It's so antiquated. It's like back in the day when nuns uh, would hit kids who had tried to write left-handed. They'd be pounding their hands and say, "You have to write right-handed." Yeah, like so antiquated. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, many different places sure. I want to go yeah, now. Yeah. All right, so let's get to, let's get let's talk about. I want to get back to the cannabis side of it here, sir, and I want to get talk about. Yep. Um, definitely want to talk about the drugs piece of it, the ADHD, the pharmaceutical companies. I want to get your views on this, especially you being in another country versus you know the U.S. to give that perspective as well. But um, it is a bit, as you know, listening to past episodes, this is a, a big hangup of mine as well. And I know how much cannabis can help. So, so I'd love to hear per, your perspective and anything you've done through your research uh, regarding the subject. Well, uh, you may have gone over it on episodes I haven't listened to, but I will say that um, there is a lot of people who've used this phrase before me, but I've worked as a uh, medical bud tender in Washington and saw firsthand that cannabis was not a gateway drug. It was the exit drug. I worked with uh, patients in, in, um, in, in the medical side of bud tending in Washington where they were out of um, bad car accidents or out of the military on vast amounts of opioids all the way up to morphine. And we weaned them off morphine. We weaned them off morphine to the point as well where they were so charged about bringing those numbers down, they ended up bringing down their weed consumption too. And they ended up just carrying around a little one hitter and basically microdosing cannabis as well. So these were people who went from uh, crippling addictions to opioids and all of those complications to not just having no complications but having no real you know vice in a certain sense I mean the odd sip of cannabis could be likened to the odd beer socially I'm sure so it was definitely one of those things that was very inspiring to see from from that side of things from my own perspective I had to use cannabis in so I, I was placed on all kinds of different things uh, to treat depression in New York City. <laughs> depression probably spawned from trying to be an actor in New York City. Um, but uh, I was given, you know, uh, the standard things like um, 
uh, Abilify and um, trying to think of some of the other things that they put me on. Um, not diazepam, but that may have been at one point, but a number of different um, mood stabilizers, mood boosters and things like that, that had the effect of when I tried you know, they would prescribe me one milligram dosage and I'd say, no, I'm just not feeling good. Oh, they say, okay, well, let's just take it down half. Well, taking it down half um, will produce what they call brain shocks, where anytime I would look, turn my head quickly, it felt like exactly as, it as it's described. It felt like a weird a lightning bolt would jut through my ears uh, and spark across my brain. And it turns out that that's somewhat like, you know, analogous to exactly what it is your brain not handling the adjustment the titration of those drugs those uh and the way that they interact with your your neurons i just was not handling it well and so i i started getting more cannabis and cutting down and titrating very slowly taking you know just a shaving less of a pill each day or uh, sorry, over the course of a week, and then stepping another two shavings off of a pill for another week, and then going that way. And by the end of a few months, I was able to be completely off of both Abilify and a few other drugs that uh, I should probably have them written down somewhere so I know. But yeah, yeah. I, I took the slow, slow route of just slowly taking them down. But when I had trouble, I wasn't thinking about the pill. I was thinking about, well, I'll just have a quick bowl or I'll roll up a, a tiny a pinner joint and, and that'll be good. Because of course, in New York City, especially in the Cartoon Network and delivery days of New York City, it was uh, very expensive to maintain a cannabis habit. And so um, I, you know, just worked sparingly off a couple couple grams a day. Wow. Yeah. I love it. So I, I, I truly believe the cannabis, uh, as a longtime triathlete, 18 years, I use less than a shot glass worth yeah. of ibuprofen because cannabis, THC specifically. But now I'm definitely in the last six months taking more CBD in. So I'm really interested how you've switched from THC mm -hmm. to CBD and how CBD has helped you. Because, uh, you know, there's studies out there, but I'm finding here in the U.S., uh, that there's still a lot of education that needs to be done about CBD. Is Scotland the same way where not many mm -hmm. people are, know about it? And is it growing or is there a population that right. understands it already? So one of the first jobs I was able to get when I left Washington State was for a right, like, uh, right on, they call it High Street, the main street in Glasgow, um, which is called, which is a great name, Sucky Hall Street, S-A-U-C-H-I-H-A-L-L, -L, all one word, Sucky Hall Street. Yeah. <laughs> Sucky Hall Street is the main, main drag in Glasgow. And uh, we had, so I, if you know Doctor Who, you'll know what they call a TARDIS. And it's a police box, a one meter by one meter box, you know, three feet by three feet box with a door on one side that just says police on top. Well, those have not been used for many decades. I think they shut down in the late 60s. And so they just sit in the middle of the road with nothing in them. And now people are buying them and or renting them out. And a CBD tincture company that I worked for was in that was in that space. What and a great um, idea. I befriended the guy who worked. 
Yeah, it is. And it's, it's great because so many people walk past who would never have given a thought to the words, to the letters CBD and figured out what it is. And it's basically like a in your face marketing, not just marketing, but informational um, spot where people from all walks of life are stopping to say, what's this good for? What are you doing here? Now that's, that's good and bad. The good is the exposure for sure. The bad side of it was the fact that there are the laws in the UK basically say that, and this is what I had to say most days when I worked in the, in that box was I cannot make any medical claims about this product or its uses. This is only to be thought of as a food additive that some people enjoy. And I would have to refer people to Google specifically, or not specifically, but I would just say, search the web for your ailment that you might want to treat and the letters CBD. If I told them cannabidiol, they would say, so, uh, <laughs> imagine would, spelling it to everybody. Yeah. So I would just tell them, Google your, ele- your ailments or ailments. And CBD, and if there is a page that mentions those two things together, then there might be an association that you can explore through those links in other ways. Um, and then we'd have people coming in and people telling us stories about my granny. She is inactive. She barely gets out of her chair um, to do anything, and she's got high blood pressure. But the you know 15 milligram. Uh, um, drops that you've given me have lowered her blood pressure by 15 points in the past three weeks that we've been using them. And we're going to buy more so that we can keep going. And these are people who have, who have looked at their medical sort of outlook completely differently through the use of just adding three or four drops of a tincture to their tea or to, you know, here they have so uh, they have a, a soft drink here called Iron Brew, I R N B R U, which is one of the most amazing concoctions in the world. It's the only Scotland's the only country where uh, a soft drink outsells Coca Cola, and that's Iron Brew. Um, Iron Brew is a flavor somewhere between sun-kissed orange and Hubble Bubble Bubble Gum. It's the weirdest thing in the world. But it's got CBD in it. No, but I would recommend people who hated the taste because the the tincture, the uh, it was a glycerin um, or a hemp seed oil tincture. The hemp seed oil tinctures were the most potent, yeah. um, but they were definitely um, very strong plant taste. And people would just say, "Oh, it's disgusting! I couldn't possibly." And I said, "Put a couple drops in your iron brew." And they go, "What?" And I said, "Just try it." And they would, and they said it basically disappeared because iron brew has, as as you can imagine, a very strong taste. No, that's a good idea. So that's interesting. So it, the, you worked, what was the name of the company that created, that uh, rented these spaces out, these meter by meter spaces? Yeah, um, there's a, there's quite a few. Um, now there's one, I just saw one the other day uh, called Mr. Ohm, O-H-M in Edinburgh, which is the other big city in Glasgow about an hour away. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a couple other people trying to get on that bandwagon, but I would say that, um, when I got here about a year ago, there were maybe four big CBD companies. And now I'd say there's easily 40, maybe more. 
Is that the, good or the, bad? The rate it? of expansion of CBD. Um, I'd say it's, uh, it is what it is. You know, I, I could say that, you know, our products were the best, but there's no way for me to know. Uh, I know that, uh, um, they have certain amount of testing and things like that, but I haven't seen how the plants were grown. I don't know how they were extracted. And all I know is that this bottle says it is this percent CBD and without a proper regulated market, I am taking the word from three different breaks from the plant, you know, from the, the grower I never meet, the manufacturer I will never meet, my boss tells me this, and the guy who formulates it is sort of nudging that eh, it might not always be up to exactly this or that or the other thing. Now, I don't know, and that I wouldn't say that the companies that I worked for were less scrupulous or, or anything like that. Not at all. I think that they're providing a great service for people in Glasgow who have no access to this kind of thing um, in their culture. You know, like cannabis here is derided, I think, far worse than in the U.S. that I ever experienced. Um, they have a, a very, I mean, I think that you touched on the, the idea that marijuana has been, you know, used as a term to sort of invoke a racism, racist response in the, in the listener. Well, here they, they use the word, they use marijuana in that same way, but they also refer to anything that is of any potency. They call it skunk. And they'll now refer to things like super skunk. And it's all this very dangerous stuff that uh, that children are dying from and, and the drug wars and the gangs, all this over, all this over skunk territory. And it's really kind of insidious and weird, this insistence on, you know, basically naming a wonderful plant after a stinky animal. But I do like skunks too, but you know, I like skunks when they're part of my THC. If I'm on the trail, I do not want a skunk <laughs> yeah. anywhere near me. I'm sorry. Holy smokes. <laughs> We're moving along like so they, They're cute. Absolutely, they're cute. And Pepe Le Pew, come on. He's one of the best Warner Brother characters ever. Man. <laughs> that dude is so savvy with the ladies. Oh, man, Pepe Le Pew. He just needs to work on consent. As soon as he, you know, he can be ah, as, as uh, creepy as he wants, as long as they're both into it, right? Yes, he was on the edge <laughs> of that hashtag Me Too movement, wasn't he? <laughs> oh, that's going to be banned. Yeah, yeah, he, he's pretty... He's, he wasn't very woke yet, but we'll get there. No, I don't want to go off on this. Um, I'm having too much fun here. Okay, so CBD, CBD, DP. So tell me, uh, all right, first of all, I want to put some things in perspective for the listener that I should have done already. First of all, how old are you, sir? Oh, I'm, uh, I'm 35. Um, I went through um, uh, high school in the mid, uh, mid to late 90s um, and uh, went out to Scotland in 2000. 2001 and uh, through 2005 for college. They only do university here for three years, uh, generally, as one of the reasons I wanted to go. Is it more focused with less? What? How does it make it so they can do three years instead of four in the U.S.? Is because they do less of the of the gen ed type classes? No. I, I, they, they say it to, when I said that to them, they kind of said, why do you need to go for four? <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, oh, oh, yeah, good point, huh? Because <laughs> everything that I learned in my three years is, you know, there was nothing in my fourth year if I were to try to link it up to other programs that I interviewed with in the U.S. Um, that, you know, there's really, 
I couldn't think of a good reason why. I could see perhaps with other types of fields, but for where I was doing with acting, three years was plenty of time. And uh, I would say that we might have a slightly longer year with us with fewer breaks. We would have an um, end-of-year break, an Easter break. Yeah, they, they're all about Christmas and Easter breaks here. It's, there's not much of the, the term holiday uh, or uh, any of that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a very... Um, it's just a very um, concentrated year, and uh, but the one thing is, uh, I was interviewing at a lot of American schools and um, for for acting, and um, we just do we do acting education very differently in the in the UK in general. Um, it's a lot more like um, just almost like a regular job. We would only have classes between maybe eight and five eight five p.m. Uh, whereas in a lot of American universities, they're working you from, you know, 7.30, 8 a.m. all the way till 7, 8 p.m. You know, they really try to make you burn out in American acting schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't feel like that's very necessary here. So from your perspective, do you think it put you behind the eight ball for, for people coming through American acting schools versus what you went through? Or do you think it's a person by person basis and what you get out of it? I think it's always going to end up being person by person. Um, there is no way that an acting school can prepare you for the acting uh, job. Uh, the acting job is, uh, it's largely a, a, a popularity contest. Um, if you're, I mean, this is me speaking very broadly and I'm sure that people won't appreciate, not everyone will appreciate this, but you know, I, I, I was getting sort of subtle hints that I wasn't, um, I wasn't sexy enough to do television, <laughs> which I think is kind of, I think I, I'm so plenty attractive. Who, yeah, who is that, the actor but, you most, who, so, so for the moment, who's the celebrity you most resemble for people to put a, paint a picture? Now, most people, just so you know, you could, you're, this gentleman is on YouTube, Kenneth Mann's on YouTube, you can find him on social media if you want to see a picture, but who's the celebrity you most resemble? Well, um, I, in my standup, I've uh, I've I've said before that I people say I look like if Zach Galifianakis and Zach Galifianakis had a baby. Okay, all right, that's fair enough. <laughs> I've got a bush here, big smile, but uh, I, I really generally everyone if I put shades on, people hand me their babies and take photos. Perfect. I love it. And then with your your ability, can you can you mimic him as well? Uh, no, he's another one though. I, I I've never mimicked uh, Zach Galifianakis. That's a good point. I should probably figure that out. I could make some extra money on the street here. Just put a cup out. Hey, I'm ready for photos. Just get really publicly drunk. It could be great. Absolutely. Well, think about, suit, yeah, think about those people that are really celebrity mongers and they really think you're him and you could just <laughs> sit there and mess with them for an hour and you and your wife could just get free drinks and laugh for hours over it. This is, this is a really good retirement plan. I am going to write this down right now. <laughs> I'm glad I can contribute. Uh, so how long have you been married, sir? <laughs> I've actually just um, passed the 10 year mark with my wife. Um, we got married in 2008 in New Jersey in a little coastal town called Ocean Grove, beautiful Victorian kind of seaport town. Congratulations on your 10-year anniversary, sir. Thank you. Yeah. 
And, um, yeah, so we, uh, been married, uh, quite a little while. And when it came to 10 years in America, she came over for the wedding. We had gone, you know, we'd always been traveling back and forth between UK and America. And it's just been, you know, because we weren't married, it was limited to three months and it just eventually made us think about why are we doing this? We obviously want to get married. So we got married and we'd always kind of said, well, We'll have we'll have ten years in America and then ten years in Britain and then we'll figure out where the rest goes after that. And ten years came up and we were looking at each other like, so are we, do we want to stay in Washington? What do we want to do? And we just looked at each other and decided, no, this is right. We already thought about this and we were right. The ten years said we should go back and we did. We we went back last March and. Uh, been so happy ever since I have to say it's it's really been um, a life affirming move for us to move back here to Glasgow. That's so wonderful to hear. Do you have kids? Well, uh, we did did not for uh, we've been trying actually for about eight years, and um, the week we decided that uh, we were moving back to Scotland, we did. Uh, we ended up taking these pregnancy tests and we were pregnant. We did, weren't able to keep that child. It did, didn't want to come that time. But when we did move here to Scotland, uh, we have, uh, we're now about 25 weeks into her pregnancy. So we are, we are finally going to have her child. Congratulations, Congratulations yeah. man. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Oh, that's so, yeah, so wonderful. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we, we've been very, you know, kind of, I, we joked that the 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 list of reasons we didn't want to have children we finally got long enough, and so we we ended up pregnant. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean we we wanted children for so long that uh, we we are just so delighted, so excited, so nervous, so everything at once, and um, just. We're almost anxious to get started when at the same time we are, as expected, totally unprepared. But I've been reassured that you can't be prepared, and so I should let that go as a concept. So. <laughs> I think you're fine. From your personality, you're going you're gonna to fit with whatever baby pops out of your wife, and you guys are going to have a great life together. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> so, all right. So the, uh, this thank is, you. Thank uh, I've got so many directions to go. So you mentioned uh, something about rolling like 15,000 joints. Now, there's a couple directions I want to go with this. First of all, definitely help for medical reasons, I'm sure, for you and your wife over the years, number one. Uh, and number two, um, I am a, you know, there's one bad thing of cannabis. And I know it's something you think about as well because you made a product to, to kind of think about this is uh, long-time cannabis usage can cause chronic bronchitis. I like to put that out there to be the devil's advocate about cannabis because I'm a proponent and I will reach to the high heavens and tell all the good things about cannabis and all the good things in our body. But there is that one little caveat that we always have to mention. So first of all, 15,000 joints, come on. Like I couldn't roll one. I was so not dexterous to roll joints. So I'm incredibly impressed about that. Please talk about that. (laughs) Well, I'll say this, that in the UK, because of long because of the long history with cannabis being illegal here, they don't ha- they didn't have paraphernalia laws that allowed anyone to advertise the idea that they sold bongs or had glass. And glass is in its 
infancy here. Um, there are some amazing glass blowers here who have been making sculptures for years and years in their other means and, and doing things like that. But there weren't a lot of glass stores. Now there are. There are some beautiful glass uh, glasses for sale. And um, there's um, there was just, I think it was one of the first um, uh, gatherings called the Highland Flames that uh, met last year and they did a number of different uh, displays. A lot of different people came in and did live demonstrations of glass blowing and, and, and sold lots of great pieces, but they just don't have a culture of it because, and as well, there is a, a up until the vaping explosion, which in the UK is huge. I mean, as you probably know, and as I heard from other episodes with you, vaping is a big deal in a lot of different places, but in, a, in Britain, it, it looked like in five years, it went from everyone smoking to everyone vaping, and um, yeah. So the uh, the vaping here is um, is very common, but uh, rolling is a very common rolling your own cigarettes is a very common thing for university students and other people to make uh, to to make ends meet because pre rolled cigarettes are more expensive, where as a packet of shredded tobacco and buying some papers is very common. Um, and so here, that's how much was most used to smoking. And so when we were in New York for eight years, um, it was, it was never have a quick bowl. It was, can, can you roll up a joint? And so three to five joints a night, especially once my wife, uh, had some health, health, health difficulties at one point, we had to up our, you know, from one joint tonight to a couple joints tonight and then doing the math. That's every night for for years and years, and then I would start getting jobs where I would roll for I would say like an ounce or two for uh, a band or um, often bartenders uh, that I would meet. Who uh, a lot of bartenders in New York uh, move a lot of weight, <laughs> and uh, so yes, they are uh, they would really like to have a nice pre rolled joint in their head stash uh, because. It's the kind of thing, if it's already rolled up, I can just walk right out into the alley behind the restaurant or whatever else, have a quick joint, and get back to work. Um, if they have to roll it themselves, it you know just it could burn poorly or any number of extra things. And so, yeah, I, I've sort of refined my technique and found my clientele slowly, but it's, it's not a very, I mean, because it's an unregulated market again, it's difficult to sort of, connect with those people and make money that way. So I've always had other jobs, but uh, when I got to Washington, that was, and became a medical and retail bud tender. That was when I really started connecting with growers and people who wanted a better smoking joint. So you developed a product, Staylet Tips, is that your brand? Yeah, so I started calling my tips Staylit Tips um, for a, 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 a pre-roll that I call the Super Cone. So Super Cone um, is a mixture of flour, extracts, and keef. The, the trifecta together, mostly just to, to make it extra potent for heavy users, I, I was smoking like 10 joints a day at one point. And then because I started infusing, I was able to smoke three joints a day. And just in terms of overall um, time consumption, it was great. And it's also a nice thing to have at a party. And they, when you do add those two things into flour, boy, oh boy, does it burn nice and slow and even. 
and it's very potent. So a single, you know, what what would look like a gram and a half cone, I can pass them around for a party for, you know, normally a gram and a half size cone, you would maybe get, you know, 15, 20 pucks out of it before it's at its end. But when it's got all these infusions and when I'm rolling them the way I like to, they'll you know, you'll get 50 or 60 puffs out of them and they'll burn nice and slow for 25, 30 minutes and everybody can complete their sentence without taking too big, you know, huffing puffs on it because I have a tip on the end. My paper tips are the first thing I developed and uh, yes, I call them the stalet tips. Now the stalet tips are, um, they're a cone made of, um, they're kind of very rigid as opposed to sort of the spiraled paper um, paper tips that is normally uh, made and is common in all pre-rolled cones. My tips are rigid, so you can you could pop out like a uh, a pre-rolled cone and drop mine into them, and the ex- they extend. So they're probably about um, an inch and a half long, um, and the regular width wide. So you can roll them. Um, or drop them into pre-rolled cones, and they end up making a, a longer, more elegant-feeling joint that's easier to pass from the tip itself. That pinching action that you have to do whenever you are trying to pass a joint, and as you get higher, the harder that is to do. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an attempt to just make it just a bit more, um, I don't know, um, what's that word? But, yes, just just a bit more conducive to passing and things like that. And then they're smaller at the very aperture end that you smoke from. Uh, and that's why I went with stay lit tip because it means that you have to puff just a little bit less, uh, to get a nice hot, hot, fiery, um, uh, out of smoke out. So people like my tips because they, um, uh, they smoke very, um, very hot. I hesitate to say hot because a lot of people like what they think are cooler drags. But really, if you're if you're burning uh, your weed with a lot of airflow, you're kind of not getting the best uh, the best burn out of it. So mine are actually quite a quite a good stronger airflow, and they they um, they burn very evenly on their way down. So I've what what type of paper is it? Hemp paper you're making out of, or or, or I'm always concerned about delivery methods. I'm They're sorry. actually I'm using yes, it's hemp. It's, it's hemp card from uh, from raw. So raw makes a whole bunch of different tips, including one of their and my favorite product that's also used by Dabro Seven Ten and uh, Rob Jetjet. They all use, or a lot of people use uh, the raw gummed tips. Um, and the gummed tips just are a regular length um, individual, not in the in the packet on one side, but they sort of have a little slide out tray. And you get them, and they have gum on one side, that same nasty gum that you can um, you know attach directly to the next one and make a big ring for those big the big um, sort of I forget the grill of fingers or whatever else you call them. I don't know. Some people call them doinks. I don't know. But uh, I mine are all cones. I I really prefer cone shape um i think it's it's uh the cone shape to me is very important because as you smoke the resin condenses on the 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 cannabis you're about to smoke later as, as the as the ember burns down and if it's a cylinder shape in my opinion it uh it doesn't uh it gets too resinous by the end but as if you are making the cone shape that narrowing effect as you get towards the tip 
uh, means that there's less to combust and it ends up smoking better. So how can, uh, how are you selling that now? Is it just in Scotland internationally? How are you, how is that working for you? Well, because it is a handmade product right now, my Stalet tips are all handmade. I can I do bulk orders down to London and New York and other places uh, for people to sell, just sort of with other things. I'm I'm not that I don't I don't ask too many questions about how people are selling them if they're selling them uh, uh, retail or not. But I I haven't seen them many places sort of advertised anywhere. But um, they are um, I sell them directly through Etsy. Um, they are handmade, and I have my own Etsy shop, Staylit Tips. Um, they are for my paper version. And uh, recently, just the other uh, about a month and a half ago, I had we released myself and another maker from Austria a surgical steel version of my tips that are amazing. They are really fantastic, and we've been having some great sales and orders directly through the Staylit Tips website, StaylitTips.com. So I want samples, brother. I don't know if I told you. We have, no, you're getting some. We no have worry. 20 retail stores. <laughs> we have a 4,000 chain uh, network distribution chain that we're going to be putting some CBD products into. And um, we are always looking for good quality products. So you have to send me samples. Uh, can you right now, while we're, while we're talking yeah, about no, it on I... this subject, before we get off of it on another tangent, can you tell everybody your social media sites everywhere they can find you. And don't you have a blog as well? So tell people how they can find you or follow you. Yeah, absolutely. So my most active social media is uh, Super Cone Man, M-A-N-N. So it's at Super Cone Man, M-A-N-N. That's uh, on Instagram. Now you can also use that same tag, that same uh, handle on Facebook. I have Super Cone Man, at Super Cone Man on Facebook, uh, where I post some of the same content. Um, and then I also have Stay Lit one word, underscore tips. Staylit underscore tips is the paper version of my tips on Instagram. And the other company that I work with to make, um, uh, I work with another person to um, to produce the steel version. That is on Instagram at Staylit tips, all one word. So the surgical steel Staylit tips are found there on Instagram. Um, however, I have, and I've just recently started, I haven't been able to, I'm, I'm trying to work out some technical side of things. Um, but yeah, I'm starting a, I have started a um, YouTube channel, which you can find just by searching Ken Man on YouTube. So it's K-E-N-N-M-A-N-N. My name, Kenneth Mann, I've always gone with the two N's in both names um, because it's symmetrical, and I, I like that. It. I do, too. Um, but, yes, yeah, Ken Mann uh, on YouTube. I have a couple of um, short videos up and one longer video explaining a little bit of where I want uh, cannabis to go via CBD and other things, but uh, that will, through time, turn into a video blog or video um, podcast, in a sense, um, that, um, and I'm also going to be using that. I, so with every package of Staylit tips, you get a, a tin and a carrying case, uh, for the tips, the pair of tips. And, um, in the case is a 
QR code that will link you directly to that YouTube channel where you can see suggestions on how to roll with Daylit tips, including methods of using pre-rolled cones. So you can drop my Staylit tips directly into a pre-rolled cone and just pack as usual. So there's not much to do or much expertise to have, but I do find that rolling with the Staylit tips can produce a really fantastic product, of course, and pre-rolled cones are great for their own uses. And for definitely people who aren't experts at rolling, they're a great second runner-up to not using a cone. <laughs> Perfect. So I have been I've told people through many episodes that I'm a heavy bong user and uh, I'm actually going to start researching dabs but now you have me intrigued because the reason why I haven't smoked a lot of joints is number one I didn't want to have bad paper so using the hemp is really excellent because it's basically the same thing going into your body as the, as the flower uh, but number two um, yep. I, I just always couldn't smoke it right. I like. I have a, a friend of mine that's, that's also a smoker, and he smoked a couple joints with me recently, and he won't smoke with me anymore because the way I smoke, actually, he says, is I don't smoke joints correctly. So apparently, I need a lesson in smoking joints as well. Okay. <laughs> it always canoes on us, and apparently, it's my fault, and I can't figure out why. Can you describe what canoeing uh, okay. is? Can well, I describe canoeing of a, of a joint. Yes, uh, canoeing. Yeah, no, canoeing is a big is is an issue and uh canoeing is what happens when there is basically a run down a, a run down one side. What I mean by that is where the fire will burn down one side of the joint faster than the other side of the joint, leaving it basically burning unevenly and leaving the part that's less burnt falling out sometimes and never never ever getting smoked. So uh it, it can be very, very problematic and annoying to deal with. And there's a lot of people who do, uh, you know, uh, joint emergency services where they'll dab dab their, their finger on their tongue and put a little saliva on the faster burning end as a means of slowing it down and evening it up. Or, or you just waste the area that's not been burnt by lighting the whole thing with a, with a, with a, 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 a lighter so that it's caught up with the faster burning side. But the the best way around that is to yeah practice 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 so that it burns evenly from the beginning but there are a couple of techniques for doing that one of which is is making a a joint uh packed properly now you probably know that if you pack a joint too tightly it won't burn properly but it if it's too loose, you're going to get runs for sure. Uh, you're going to get canoeing or runs down the side for sure. And so what do you do? A lot of people will use a what they call a pokey bit, <laughs> just something that they can, or a chopstick or something to shove down the end and press it down. Well, there you could potentially run it too hard in there. And so what I do is I use, in fact, the, the original uh, product I used was just a plain old, the, the white round Bic pens. A white round Bic pen has a nice uh, curved butt on the, on the non-ballpoint end. And if you put that down the joint and then run till it makes contact with the, uh, with the flower at the top end, the wide end of the joint, and uh, I'll press that down just a little bit and run my fingers down that, down the J, sort of redistributing the flower and feeling the flower throughout the entire J. 
if you rotate around the joint and do that in several spots as you sort of press down the sides of the J, you're going to evenly distribute the flour without it overpacking. And from there, you're, you're off to the races. You're unlikely to get a, a canoeing joint if you pack it tight, uh, but then also sort of relax everything and make sure it doesn't go too tight. So it goes back to practice, practice, practice. Yeah, just like Carnegie Hall. Got to get there somehow. The best way is to practice, practice, practice. Uh, and I see you notate that you, you just uh, have a help, help of a partner out of Austria. So it definitely looks like you, you are, are growing. What is your um, ultimate plan, like two, three-year future of this these products? How, how can I help you get to that level? Yeah, well, I mean, all I'm... I mean, so my partner... Um, my partner is a guy named Fabian out in Vienna, and he is, uh, he's younger than me, but he is brilliant. And he has another company called Metal Forms Bowls. So he, uh, I think, uh, through some contacts, through people he's met, ended up meeting some of the people who make uh, uh, milled products and hand polished products for Daimler Chrysler and Mercedes and things like that. Sort of the the steel that goes around badges or parts of door handles that are are customer facing. Uh, very very high end, needing to be very durable metals. And he ended up finding ways to make bowls through those manufacturers. Um, that are aluminum made out of solid pieces of aircraft-grade aluminum that are then coated so that your aluminum never comes in contact with your flour or your burning or anything. So we all know that aluminum heated is not one of the better metals to use, but at a high enough quality, it can be much safer. And if it's coated, then it's no, it's inert. There, the coating is completely inert up to many more degrees than your BIC or than your lighter or your uh, or your your ember is ever going to get to. So he makes what he calls the indestructible bowl, which people have posted on people running them over, throwing them off bridges, and they are tough as nails. And then he has now worked out with this company how to make a beautiful 18 millimeter um, uh, connector surgical steel bowl piece that is amazing it's mirror finished polished and all that and uh, when i saw that we reached and connected to each other and said look i make this out of paper i'm still trying to find the right paper manufacturers to take my stalet tips to production and maintain a very high level of quality but i can see that you are making incredible quality products and he suggested a collaboration and he, um, I gave him some some of the of my paper stalet tips. Uh, we talked a bit about design and other things that we came to, and he made up a a, um, a CAD version of the surgical steel stalet tip, and we made ten prototypes. Those ten prototypes have now gone into production. We have uh, our first production run done, and we have a whole bunch of them sitting to get sold. And so it's just the two of us trying to meet with companies. I, I met with a, a great distribution um, person uh, from Sterling who has a great gift box um, uh, sort of thing that she does called Weedful Things, 
Weedful Things UK is her company. And she uh, loved the tips. And uh, so, yeah, then I'm also going into shops, head shops and other things to try and find the right people who want to stock them in stores. We want them tomorrow. I want one in my pocket. No, I'll definitely I want one in my that. pocket. Uh, yeah. I'm at the bowl and the metal. I mean, my partner is going to love this. My partner is such a joint okay. smoker that. Oh, great. I, no, I'm going to have this. Me. Seriously, I'm ordering this this weekend. Like I, right now, my buddy Bob is uh, here. He's been researching, but now for the last 10 minutes, all he's been doing is looking at your products with his eyes wide open and everything you're talking about right now. And we are so excited. We want, we want to help you bring this to the U.S. Yeah, so. dude. Oh yeah, no, we are. We're, we're. I have one friend who's expressed an interest uh, in in being a rep for stores along the West Coast, and, and uh, we're definitely looking to to get in touch with the right people for distribution on the East Coast. Um, and um, you know, we we basically down the line, I I know that I have many more joint tip design uh, modifications and versions that we are are likely to come out with, but we need to start with what we have and see sort of where the demand goes. The, the manufacturers uh, who do these kinds of products, basically they get an order from, from a, a manufacturer and they blast them out as fast as they can and they're able to charge enough that they have downtime. And we could easily fit into that downtime with, uh, while maintaining our, our cost and um, and producing really really top end products surgical steel unlike stainless steel and other inferior coating methods or other things like that is completely inert at, at almost any temperature surgical steel is meant to be put into harsh chemicals is meant to be um you know unscratchable because scratches of course in uh, in surgical steel could lead to infection if it were used say on a scalpel uh, that was uh, scratched and would harbor bacteria so it's incredibly hard incredibly safe and um, you can you know clean our tips with just uh, dipping them in alcohol uh, or putting them in salt and alcohol or you probably put them in silk sand and things like that. You know, they're very, very tough and they've been hand polished to a mirror finish, which ends up meaning that they are, they're damn hard to scratch. Um, and they are really beautiful looking. Um, the logo is also laser etched, so it's never going to rub off. No one's ever going to really be able to, uh, to slap their own sticker on it and say that that's their product because under it's going to say stay lit. Um, we worked with the highest quality materials because we realized that it's metal. It's manufactured. The, although ours are manufactured in very small batches, it could be knocked off. You know, there's no reason it wouldn't be. It seems like everything gets knocked off these days from, uh, from around the world. But at the price point that we're working with and the quality of our materials from Germany, you know, this is German surgical steel. There's nobody who's going to even come close to what we've done because we put in a lot of effort in the design and the properties of its own, you know, its own uh, materials. So we're very proud of what we've been able to make. Um, I, to be honest, my partner Fabian is the guy who has done uh, Herculean work for figuring out sort of the logistics of all these steps. And I would urge everyone to go over to uh, uh, stayalittips.com and and uh, order yourself a set. And we've also, um, we're really trying to make it almost like a platform for people to, to work with. I sent a set out to Dabro710 and he's figuring out ways of making large sort of extensions for it uh, to fit into cigars or, or other pieces. 
And just the other day, I I, uh, I was able to put my uh, stalet tip into one of the tiniest, uh, I think it's six or eight mil um, tiger tie stick molds, cigar molds. So in time, I think that this product uh, will attract joint artists, cigar artists, and other things who want to use the tips right in there. Um, but yeah, we want we want other people to to sort of see what we're doing, say, "Wow, that's cool," and I want to I want to have a set of those in my chest in my jacket pocket for when I show up to the party. I want everyone to come to me to roll their weed. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody around the world now is going to know about you because I'm going to help spread it. I mean, it's incredible. I'm sitting here right now and I can't get over the products, and I'm looking at them, seeing what I'm ordering in a minute. You, you express them very well. Are you a marketing? I mean, you're an actor, but obviously you market well. You hold yourself well. Do you sleep at all ever? <laughs> I, I I don't sleep much. Uh, I don't, <laughs> but uh, it's not it's not because I work too much. I think I, I think I just um, as I think it's a somewhat. Like I, I was listening to your conversation that you were having about music, and while I love music, and I do listen to music, I never, I don't connect to music in the same way that other people do. I feel often like I'm not really, I don't entertain myself much. I'm always just about learning new things, doing something better. I'm always listening to politics podcasts or comedy podcasts, and just trying to like. I don't know. I, I don't often feel like I'm just sitting around doing stuff. And, um, well, I do think I could be doing an awful lot more with regards to marketing this product. I am glad that I do know my product inside and out. And I really like sharing what I've made with people. And, um, you know, I just think that if people try it, they're going to love it. So why not try and get it out to as many people as possible so they can, they can really just chat it up and figure it out. I'm not in this to become a billionaire. I just want to be able to do what I do, which brings me to back to what you were asking me earlier. What do I want to do with this? So certainly make more products and things like that. But Fabian is the one who has more skills towards manufacturing and marketing and those types of things. And so I am you know, more than happy for him to advance his career in that direction and for new products in that way. What I've always wanted to do is to be able to maintain my connection to surgical steel stalet tips, um, to be able to do live rolling. I really like talking about cannabis. I like talking about my time in the medical industry and I love rolling for people, something that they can spark up right then and go, wow, that's nice and, and pass it off to a friend and appreciate it. So one of the things that I've uh, been doing in Washington when I lived there and something I really, really enjoy doing is weddings, parties, events, all kinds of things where people hire me in to sit at my table and drop me off some extra crispy, deliciously cured dank. And I sit down and make something quite exquisite for them to savor as a group. And we, have great, a every bus, every and we have great conversations while it's happening, yeah, right? It just, Exactly. Yeah. Just something that they can, that we can all chat about. Either you're talking to me or you're taking the joint away and you're having a, a, a session in the corner with your friends, but just something where I'm there at the party and I know my, what I'm there to do is to, is to make it 
something very special, something that everybody can pick up in their hands and enjoy. You know, in much the same way, uh, a, a nice party or even any old bar will have a mixologist, a bartender, someone there who can take the raw thing of, you know, anybody could open up a bottle of vodka and pour it in a glass, but it takes someone with a certain amount of expertise, acumen, and flair to make a compelling case for hiring in a bartender. I think I'm that person for cannabis. I like being that type of person for cannabis. That's perfect. Okay, so I want to. We're getting towards the end, but and we haven't even talked about uh, the laws in the UK, Scotland, Ireland. Like, uh, is it different? Mm. Is it? Uh, co- yeah. Can Can you spend the last ten minutes or so telling about all the, uh, the maybe the laws there as well as the differences between the US? Okay, so um, in similar, so in the US, I believe the threshold of THC allowed in in products to be that are legal is 0.3%. That's what is basically the marker line for what is considered hemp versus uh, cannabis. Even though that delineation, as you know, and, and as you've been mentioned, is, is a very odd one to make. But as we said, the 3% is, or 0.3% is where it is in the US. In, in the UK and most of Europe, apart from Switzerland and Italy, that uh, where their their threshold is 0.6% THC. In the UK and most of Europe, it is 0.2% THC. Now, what this means is that we can utilize hemp products for tea and other things like that, and it's perfectly legal. It can be sold as nugs, as anything else, but as long as when they grind it up, put it to a lab and test it, it tests below 0.2% THC. That means that no one is getting the full benefit of their CBD because their CBD in that situation is under, you know, underactivated from a very small, small amount of THC in the product. And the best growers of this plant are working on THC plants. So you're getting subpar buds at full price, meaning it's still 15 pounds a gram here. Uh, 15 pounds a gram is basically like uh, around 18 to $22 uh, per gram. Wow. When you're talking about an eighth, you can get that for here. Yeah. I mean, and oddly, they do quarters and then they don't call them eighths. They call them half quarters here. A half quarter would be about 40 pounds. 30 if you know somebody really nice. But again, those the cannabis prices here, because it's all, you know, unregulated marketplace for, for full value THC product, I, I would, you know, I just haven't been that interested in because the risks associated here if being a um, uh, an import, you know, being a, a, a visa here on a visa, I have to pay taxes for another four years before I'm allowed to become a citizen. Um, I have the, I'm sure that it would be exercised too. If I were, you know, uh, using cannabis that was high in THC, or if I was attempting to import it or get it in the post or something like that, it would be very dangerous for me. And so I, I just don't do it. Uh, you know, if somebody hands me a, a, a spliff or something like that, I'm, I'm happy to have a little taste of it, but in general, I'm not going to be uh, breaking any laws regarding that, and so I've stuck to cannabis uh, to low THC hemp flower, which I think tastes fantastic. And um, 
the, the next step really is getting growers who are growing illegally to grow hemp uh, to the same skill level and in the using the same high high quality processes. You know, there if we have a wide spectrum of types of growing here, just as you do in the U.S. You know, from uh, aeroponic uh, chemistry grows all the way out to no-till live soil, full organic, no heavy metal kind of grows. It just depends on who you meet, who you know, and all that kind of thing. The hemp in general has all been tumble trimmed and generally has very few trichromes and things encrusted on it anymore. And it tends to be a very dry product. So um, it needs to be cured and things like that and rehydrated when you get it. Um, because it's generally very dry, which the positive on that is you get more volume. But um, it is, it's kind of feels a lot like the, if you must, you've traveled out to the, to the regulated markets and seen the, you know, the wonderful products that they are out with, and we are very, very far from that in the UK at the moment. I know that there are ways of getting those things, certainly in the post. So that's a very common thing here. Um, a lot of the of the um, black market traffic happens through um, Instagram and things like that. But, you know, just given the way that you can't really verify who you're talking to or you don't know whether or not it's a sting kind of thing going on, I steer very clear of it all and make all of my posts very clear on the fact that anything that is a post from the UK, uh, like a photograph from the UK, that it is generally either uh, hemp flower or I'm using for some of the demo uh, photos and things that I have for my own products here, I will roll sometimes just from the uh, from the herbs aisle, dried marjoram, or um, I've rolled with cilantro before. (laughs) <laughs> which is very fun. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't smoke any of those, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, there's a lot of people doing edibles because you're able to get trim and extract that and you get a lot of good CBD in trim um, and it'll still give you a, quite a heavy effect, you know, in edibles. So edibles are very popular here in the UK, mostly because they are more discreet. Um, you can have a, a a thing of candies that you picked up somewhere and that's that, you know, no, it, they don't have much grounds to test the candies and things like that. But yeah, it's, um, it's somewhat draconian in the, the ways that, uh, that they handle cannabis here. Yeah. Do you, so I talked to someone who, uh, Kevin Madden, who is a political analyst here and he said, the reason why THC in the medical field and it's all rolling here is because the, the, People that are proponents of cannabis in the U.S. went grassroots to their local politicians and built it up to Washington that way instead of trying to start at Washington and trickle it down. Do you see any kind of movement there to help one way or the other? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I haven't had uh, an awful lot of connection with the group, um, but UKCSC, UK Cannabis Social Clubs, is a very big brand in a sense out here in in, in the UK. UKCFC has a an advocate who um, is basically going around to meetings all the time, all around the country, um, meeting with police officials and doing basically live. There's a lot of very frank discussion in the UK where you know they have the tradition in the UK of prime minister's questions where you'll have a lot of very direct and honest and tough questions for the 
the president, you know, the, the prime minister to answer. And they do very similar dialogue uh, on cannabis here with uh, politicians, with uh, police constables and, and other people in, in the on both sides of the equation. And uh, he's a very good um, advocate for cannabis. Um, building towards a model similar to what they have in Spain. In Spain, it's sort of like um, your your home is your castle, and as long as there is no um, no immediate danger, there's no reason for you anyone to come into your property. And so, anything done on your property, it's none of the police's business. And so, clubs are springing up sort of on private property, where if you are a member. And paying dues as a member, that is, in a sense, a slice of your property, and you will not be prosecuted or whatever else for anything done on that property. And so the cannabis social clubs are happening here in the UK. There is not currently one in Glasgow, though a company is trying to start a CBD lounge, uh, smokable and, and things like that lounge here called the Zen Den. The Zen Den is a really cool business that just um, is just starting up now, and I'm hoping to roll for them in the future. Wow. We've gone over so much. All right. So we have to cut it off because I know you have family to get to, but uh, I just want to thank you for everything. Thank you for sharing your social media. We are going to hashtag everything. I hope you're okay if I put all of your businesses at hempletics.com on my affiliated links. Um, Any sharing you could do with my podcast out there, we would love it because we are going to share a lot of your information here. I will also be calling you on the side to talk to you about the product. So I will call you this week about that. Um, but I, I really, this conversation has been phenomenal, Ken. I, I couldn't have asked uh, for a really a better first conversation with someone who, this is so natural and uh, you're really a good guy. And I, I really appreciate knowing you and you reaching out to me. So thank you for everything. No, my pleasure. And really great chatting with you. I hope to do it again sometime soon and definitely give me a call and we'll talk more about my, uh, all my different products and services and things that I'm, I'm um, hawking around the world. So yeah, it'd be really great to, to do this again sometime. Thanks again. Yeah. Uh, just so you know, I plan to have you on within the next like uh, month, a month and a half, because I know we had you and another gentleman, Ryan, the one to come on and we want to talk about MMA, which we didn't even yeah. talk about exercise. So I really want to make, I want to make this a quick sure. turnaround. Uh, and I hope that can help with your products as well as us talking about more on the exercise size as well with you. So um, thank you for everything, sir. You have a wonderful sure. day and uh, we will catch up very soon. I've already subscribed to your YouTube channel, by the way. So when you see me, make sure you respond in kind because I have my own YouTube channel as well. Uh, but for all you listeners and everybody in Scotland that listens to this, uh, we have a website, hempletics.com. We are also on iTunes at Podbean. It's called the Hempletics Podcast. And at hempletics.com, if you like it, we have gear. We have the bumper sticker up now, 4 by 6 We have hoodies that are both zipped and non-zipped and t-shirts please support the podcast that is totally to pay operational fees Uh, so thank you to one and all for listening thank you ken and we will look forward to talking to you very soon have a good night night